Let's pray and uh, let's ask God to help us in our time in his word. Father, we rejoice to be together with the people of God in the house of God. We remind ourselves too, however, that you are with us wherever we are, whether we're with another or by ourselves. You are with us in all places, whether we have the night shift or we're washing dishes, working on the car or on the trail looking at the beauty of this world. You are with us in all times and all places for those who have turned to you in saving faith. But we acknowledge, Lord, uh, right now, this moment that you are here. We draw near to you. We ask that we would be aware of your presence and that we would be attentive to the teaching and convicting of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that I would just be a mouthpiece, just a conduit through which your eternal and living word would work upon the lives of your people. Uh, So speak to us now, Lord, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in our second week in Isaiah here, so if you'll, actually, I guess third week we did an intro, and last week we looked at chapter one, a stinging passage, blistering And this week, we have a very sweet five verses uh, that I think will be healing balm uh, for all of us. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. I am myself, I am a sucker for restoration TV shows, okay? Not so much home restorations. That looks exhausting to me. I don't want any part of that. I'm just trying to keep up. But I particularly like uh, automotive restoration shows, car shows. I think that's a blast. And I love seeing an old, broken-down car brought back to life and to run right and work right and look right. I love that. Um, I have done a very, very, very modest one uh, years ago. had a 1972 Toyota Land Cruiser. To most people, looks like a Jeep to Toyota folks, you know what I'm talking about. And I loved that thing. And uh, week in and week out, we just did what we could to set it back to rights, you know, doing, redoing the seats and the upholstery and hinges and repainting some aspects and dealing with rust. And it was really uh, fun and a really fun ride when we were done with it. Well, we've started another one, actually. Uh, this past summer, Amy decided that she was done with her Subaru Outback wagon, you know, the same car that you all have. Uh, Everybody in Fairbanks has. Um, I don't know if it was fatigue of walking out into the parking lot at Fred's and going, hmm, which one's mine? (laughs) But uh, she decided that she was uh, ready to part with that and wanted a Toyota Land Cruiser herself. Yeah. So uh, we got a 1997, which is now an old car, by the way, a 1997 Toyota Land Cruiser that had been parked with a blown head gasket and uh, just some broken down bits here and there and a little bit of cosmetic issues, but, but altogether a pretty good car, kind of a diamond in the rough. So we bought it, and uh, we are in the process of restoring it or bringing it back to life. And um, it's been fun as you kind of address each thing to, oh, well, now we've got, um, you know, the exhaust had a leak. Well, that's repaired. And and uh, we put some new rowdy off-road tires on it. So Amy looks fierce driving down the road now. And it's got a big ARB, uh, uh, gr- uh, what do you call it, a grill guard up front, a new bumper. And anyways, it's just, been, it's just been really fun. And each time you get one part fixed, you think, ah, that's good. That's how it's supposed to be. 
Uh, the next one for me is I'm redoing the leather cover on the steering wheel. I'm a little nervous about that one. So anyways, that's what's coming. We even have, a, this is how nerdy we are about it. We even have a vision board. So we, have, we share a Pinterest board, no kidding, where each of us puts up pictures and says, well, I like the way this build looks. Well, I like the way this one looks. And so we're kind of finding our way together on how we want this project to go. But again, it's just fun to see something that was once broken down, put back to life, and work and run right. And so for those of you who are restoration junkies like me, this is what we find in our passage this morning in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. God gives us a glimpse of his restoration earth project. He puts the picture up there and says, this is where we're going. We're aiming at this. Even though things are dilapidated and broken down and not running correctly and in disarray and disintegrating, I'm going to set it right. It's going to run right. It's going to be right. All things will be as they ought to be. And so we get this picture of this this morning. So last week, chapter one, right, this blistering passage where God addresses Judah's condition, uh, their sin condition, and they're confronted about it. But now we look forward to uh, what we're headed to. It's like a before and after restoration. So if you look with me in Isaiah 2, uh, starting at verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Beautiful passage. First thing I want to highlight here, we get this picture here from Isaiah's vision that shows us the supremacy of God. At this present moment, many people, if you were to talk to them, would simply question the mere existence of God. Uh, they might be willing to grant you sort of your personal private beliefs as long as you don't bring them into the public square and, you know, reserve them for Sundays. And please don't be too dogmatic about it. In fact, if you assert to a friend today that there is one true and living God, that is offensive to them. But this passage shows us that in the future, there will be no questions about the existence or the supremacy of God. All nations will know that there is one God and that he reigns supreme. All nations will know this. Uh, this mountain imagery here is kind of what conveys that. It carries that point across. Uh, in the scriptures, mountains are typically more than just a topographical you know, feature. We kind of look at mountains. We see the Alaska range off on the horizon. We remark on its beauty in and out of season. We see them there. We know there's critters there. We know that we can go and play in them. They're places for recreation. Mountains very often in the scriptures are infused with 
a spiritual significance. Uh, in the ancient mind, the mountains and the high places were typically thought to be where sort of the heavens touched down to the earth, where the divine deals with mankind. Uh, think about places like Sinai or Mount Tabor, typically thought to be the site of the transfiguration. Or Mount Zion, which is a reference to the temple and the temple mount on which it sits. And so these are significant places where God has interacted with, with mankind. But it wasn't just thought to be this way in the mind of believers, of God-fearing people. Uh, it was even sort of the pagan uh, places, uh, pagan countries, uh, believed that the high places held spiritual significance. Uh, if you think about, I mean, they were the kind of favorite sites for like altars and temples and whatnot. If you think about the Canaanites who worshiped their idols at the high places. Or uh, Israel often fell prey to this. And if you think about sort of your, uh, uh, your Sunday school classes of the days of old when the high places were maybe not torn down. And so Israel fell prey to worshiping false deities there. Good kings of Israel were known for either tearing them down or leaving them up. So that's kind of what we understand about sort of these high, high places here. The vision here of the mountain of God is a symbol of the coming kingdom of God, the center of his rule and reign on earth. And what's important here is to see that it is portrayed as higher than all, the supreme place, the supreme God, his kingdom. God reveals his supremacy over any and all of the world's false deities. We are meant to understand that there is no one like our God. And the beauty of this picture is all of the world will know it then. Uh, if you think about sort of the implication of this passage for its original hearers, for Judah, as at that moment they're watching this pagan Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, TP3 as I'm calling him, and they're watching this guy aggressively gobble up all of the regions. And they're seeing his threat upon their brothers to the north, Israel, and eventually take them. And his gaze is now set upon them. So as they look around, their world is crumbling. It is falling apart. But here God assures them of his supremacy. Their nation is faltering, but God will reign supreme. And there's a significance uh, not just for them, but for us with this as well. And our application for this is not necessarily to go out and to do three things. Application in this instance with God's word is to believe something, to know that this is the case, and to believe it, to be encouraged by it, to be buoyed by it, and to have it be integrated into every aspect of our life. As we look around and we see civil unrest, uh, as we watch a contentious election, as we witness, I think we can agree, embarrassing debates, let's just say that, as we watch a divided nation, as we see fires, as we see pandemic, and all of the ripple effects of this, for us it is ours to believe that God reigns supreme that his holy temple will be established. And it's interesting, uh, we as Americans are portrayed in this passage as those other nations who will stream there. This is not fulfilled here, it's fulfilled there, and we will, in a sense, go to it. 
That's our next point here. Isaiah's vision shows us the completeness of his reign. Um, all the nations will stream to it. This made me think about, I grew up in Apple Valley, California in the high desert. Um, if you've ever been there, you can sympathize with me later and you know, express your condolences to all of the heat and sunburn that I lived through. 112 degree summers, I lived with a red nose. I was just like a Rudolph kid. And uh, God has preserved my life bringing me to Alaska so I'm not doing the regular burn and peel cycle. But that's where I grew up and I could stand in my front yard um, because really Apple Valley is more or less a pit stop uh, between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And uh, I could stand in my front yard and look off into the horizon at night and I could see where Highway 15 kind of went up towards Vegas, up over the pass and dropped over. And there would be just a red line of taillights just kind of etched into the horizon at night. And so I could just see that in my mind's eye. And when I read this passage uh, about all nations will stream to it, th this is what came to mind, except they're not going to play blackjack. They're going to be with God and to rejoice in him and delight in his ways and learn of him. A steady stream of the nations going to be with the Lord. Even the rowdy Americans. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. One of the things that really struck me about this passage is that the nations are not externally constrained to go and do this, to go to the mountain of the Lord. They're not marched along sort of against their will like captives to a new king. They go voluntarily. The voices of acting upon oneself, let us go. It's an internal desire that they have. It's not externally constrained here. They will be drawn to learn of him and to walk in his ways. I believe this is a picture of the Lord's millennial reign on earth. That's what I think is happening here. There's some discussion about that. But what we're taught here is this. Salvation will be realized in all of the nations. Now, that doesn't teach us that every person will be saved. But what it teaches us is that salvation will be experienced in each and every nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's where the redeemed will come from. And there will desire to come and worship the Lord, to learn of his ways and walk in his paths. Not a conquered foe, but willing citizens of the city of God. I was thinking about what this looks like and feels like, and I was thinking about sort of life as a parent, and I think you guys can relate to this. Many of you, you know, you have these chores and rules and uh, things that are supposed to be done at home or not done at home. And uh, you, you want your kids to do them, but typically you have to say, you've got dish night, you've got this chore, you're vacuuming, you've got the laundry, and you kind of have to dole things out and tell them it will be done. It's got to happen tonight before the guests come over so they think we live cleaner lives than we really do. We've got to keep up appearances. And you just kind of give out the rule and tell them how it's to be done, right? And what's really wonderful here is uh, as we see that this isn't sort of compelled from out. They choose to do it. Like your kids, when they see a bunch of dishes on the counter and realize those dishes are dirty. 
and I'm a person, and I can clean dishes. And, you know, without having to be asked or forced, I'm going to choose to do it just on my own. And when that happens, or the wood goes in the woodshed or whatever, it's like, yes, they're starting to get it. These things are becoming internalized rather than just externally uh, forced upon them. And that's what we see here. How beautiful it is to see the nations, not as a conquered foe under compulsion, not reluctant subjects, eager worshipers going home to their God to delight in him. No protests, no police lines, no arrests, no mandates, no lawsuits, no masks. Can I throw that in there? Just shalom. Shalom, the well-being of all people delighting in their God. Then thirdly, we see here that Isaiah's vision reveals the nature of God's reign, that it will be one of peace, a reign of peace. Verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I suspect some of you military folks may be like, cool, no more PT. That would be great. I admit when I think about the kingdom of God on earth, I don't think about there still being disputes. It was a little surprising and maybe a little unnerving for me to kind of run into that here, maybe even a little disappointment. Why is he settling disputes? In my study, I came across a line in one of the commentaries by Walt Brueggemann, and he said it better than I can, so I'm just I'm going to read what he wrote here. This was impactful for me. There will be a cessation of political and economic oppression and threat. Moreover, there will be an end to hateful, divisive ideology. The nations will learn peace and practice it. Yahweh's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man, that was just wonderful to hear. I particularly love the phrase, the nations will learn peace and practice it. They move into it and gradually grow in it and delight in it. In other words, in the coming kingdom of God, we are not just robots. We're not automatons where God just downloads a new operating system, and a new kind of programming for us. We're still persons. We're still living in community with one another. We're still learning of God and learning his ways. His goodness and his majesty, however, are life-changing for all. His judgments are received and accepted and delighted in because they are right. They're not contested. The nations will learn peace and practice it. And then we see that there's a complete disarmament. And this might be a little disappointing to some Alaskans. I know um, we tend to like our guns. But the picture here is one of the most beautiful pictures of peace in all of the scriptures is the imagery that's used. Old weapons designed for tearing flesh are now repurposed to till the ground. What was meant to destroy now is meant to cultivate. There's this wonderful contrast 
between the old way of things and the new way of things in this far coming kingdom. Uh, there's also something very human about the picture of this kingdom. Uh, in other words, it's not presented as some kind of ethereal existence where we as pixies flit about and doing weird celestial activities, right? It's very grounded. Do you notice that? There's something really human about it. It sort of corresponds to creation, earth and materials and human beings. In other words, there's still ground to till to the delight of gardeners. There's still meaningful work to be done. There are still nations, there are still different regions, but God reigns over all. There's still learning. We will still get to learn new things. We will be delighting constantly as we learn more about our God. And get this, there are still politics, but there's only one party. And our God's rule and reign is right. And it is so good that it renders all weapons as obsolete. And war is completely out of mind such that no one would even bother to train for it. That is a beautiful picture. Fourthly here, God's people are invited to walk in this light presently. There's a wonderful invitation here. Uh, what started off, this passage started by projecting into the future, right? In the last days, and Isaiah's vision goes into and helps us imagine what this far kingdom will be like. But as he gets to the end of it here, he returns to the present. And there is an invitation. He says, in the, in the here and now, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, he doesn't just say, hey, just wait a couple millennia, and your kids as kids as kids as kids as kids as kids will... See some of this. Instead, there is a present invitation to live in light of this coming reality now, in the here and now. This is to inform our lives, integrate our lives, create in us a qualitatively different kind of life as people who fear the Lord. I think what it needs to create in us, to give it a word or two words, is a confident peace. A confident peace, not a smugness, not indifference, not detachment, not ignorance of the world's issues, but in spite of it all, a confident peace. Uh, think about, in contrast, the person who has no hope of God or of his coming kingdom. They have to scratch and dig and claw, trying to wrestle a meaningful existence out of life for the few years on earth that they have before it's gone before they're gone. They have to kind of get all they can. Anxious living is all that is left for the person who does not delight in the coming kingdom of God. I think A.W. Tozer said it very well, and I'm going to close with his thoughts. God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work and only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. For those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. Before the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. Uh, we live on this earth. 
We're aware of its problems, but we're grounded in the coming kingdom of God. That's where our hope lies. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you gave us pictures of what is to come. Uh, You mean for us to be here and now. You've given us meaningful work to do. You've knit us into the fabric of life. We're to be in this world, not of it. But God, may we be in this world in such a way that it conveys we're citizens of heaven first. That's our true home and that's our true delight and we're living for that day. Thank you for a picture, Lord, that grounds us and anchors us and comforts us when we look around and see everything but this. We look forward to your shalom, your goodness recognized by all the nations. So thank you for the hope. Thank you for the encouragement and the grounding that this gives us. Pray that we would live lives in the light of this truth. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen.